Now, if there's a story in the Bible that we're all familiar with, it's probably Noah's Ark, right? Uh, in fact, I think if you went out and, and uh, just talked to people who don't even go to church or, or, or read their Bible, uh, the fact is most of them are going to be familiar with, with Noah's Ark, right? It's a, it's a story we tell to children. We decorate nurseries with it. It's, it's used at vacation Bible school. There's probably... Uh, cartoons on TV, and so it's, a, it's something we're all very uh, uh, familiar with. In fact, most of us, when we think of Noah's Ark, you know, we think of pictures like this, right? Little, little cartoony pictures with the beaver eating the boat or the woodpecker. You know, I saw a cartoon the other day as a woodpecker, and, you know, Noah's like, man, we've got to get rid of these woodpeckers. They're killing me, right? You know, those kind of things. But the fact is, as we start this study today, and we're really going to spend the next two weeks in Noah's Ark, and and then we move on to the flood, I think there's something that we really need to stop and remind ourselves of, and that is this is not a children's story. Now, this is not a children's story. Uh, it is probably one of the most terrifying stories in the Bible. I mean, when you really stop and think about what happened, uh, it, it is, it's, it's horrifying. Um, and and it's, not, it's not cute. Uh, I was looking at some paintings... Uh, Online, and I found one by a guy by the name of Gustav Dore. He lived in, I think he lived in the 1800s, and he painted a painting in, in, uh, in I think it was 1865, 1866, called The Deluge. And I don't know how well you guys can, can see that, but it's got a picture, and, and it's a rock, and these, these parents are trying to push their, their little children up on the rock. And, and it's just, that's Noah's Ark. I mean, this is the flood, right? Not the little cartoony pictures uh, that we see. It is a terrifying, horrifying uh, event. And, I, and I, I think we just need to, to, to keep that in mind. As we said last week, the lesson of the flood is that God is going to destroy all who rebel against him, even if it's billions. And the good news, of course, is that he's going to save all those who trust in him, even if it's just a, uh, even if it's just a, a few. So that's one thing I wanted to point out as we began. Uh, a second little thing I want to point out as we begin, we're going to be studying a section which is chapters 6 through 9, and again, this is all about Noah's Ark and the flood. And in this section, uh, God is actually going to make four speeches, what we'd call a speech. He's going, to, he's going to talk four times. He's going to say something four times. The first one is right here in Genesis uh, 6, 13 through 21. Uh, he'll, he'll make another one in chapter 7, another speech in chapter 8, and then he'll make another speech in chapter 9. So God is going to do a lot of, of talking in these next three chapters. Now, the interesting thing is that Noah will never say a word. He doesn't say anything in chapter 6. He doesn't say anything in chapter 7. And he doesn't say anything in chapter 8. God does all the, all the talking. Now, in fact, it's not until chapter 9 that Noah finally says something. Or, or is recorded as saying something. And, and when he finally says something, it's not any kind of words of wisdom. It's actually a curse on his grandson Canaan that finally comes out of his mouth. That's, that's the first thing that's recording. So, so now, again, we understand that during this time, Noah's talking, right? He's building the ark. He's giving instructions. He's doing all this stuff. He's talking, but the Holy Spirit never sees fit to record one word that he ever says. He only records what God says to Noah. Now, to me, that's significant. 
And in fact, I, I kind of ask myself, what, what should I take from that? If God's going to do all the talking and Noah's going to do none of the talking, what are we to take from that? Well, what we're to take from that is this is a story about God, not about Noah. See, we call it Noah's Ark, and, and, and I'm okay with that. I mean, that's how we know it. We, we talk about Noah's flood, but this is really God's Ark. It's God's flood. It's God's judgment. This is, this, this is all about God. And, and, and we tend to relate to Noah, and I understand that. He's a, he's a human being, and we tend to watch what he did and how he reacted, and that's fine. But this is a story about God, not so much about, about Noah. This is a sovereign God who is acting and judging and, and, and saving. And I think we need to keep that in mind as we go through this. If not, we'll miss some things. What, it, what, what is the Scripture trying to teach us about God, not so much about, about Noah himself? Now, as I said, he's going to make four speeches. This is the first one here, beginning in verse 13. He's going to tell Noah uh, exactly what he's planning to do, and he's going to tell Noah why he's going to do it, and then he's going to tell Noah what he needs to do. So let's begin in verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, last week, we stopped when it, where God says, I'm going to make an end of all flesh. And we started talking about, well, how many people what are we talking about here? And as we saw, there were more than likely billions of people on the planet at that time. So God says, I'm going to destroy all the flesh. But if you look down at the end, there's a little statement there that I think is important. He says, I will destroy them with the earth. Not, I'm going to destroy them from the earth. I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. Everybody see that? See, what he's saying here is that uh, I'm, the earth is, itself is going to be destroyed. Now, this, this lines exactly up with what Peter says in the New Testament. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. By the way, if you ever just get a chance to go read 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, I, I would encourage you to go do that. There's some really good stuff in that chapter about, about the flood. I want you to read what Peter says. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers are going to come. And they're going to be scoffing and they're going to be following their own evil desires. And this is what they will say. Where is he at? Where is this coming you Christians have been talking about for all this time? Where is he at? And then they're going to say this, Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. You see, guys, this is exactly what uh, evolution teaches. It's called uniformitarianism, that ever since, whenever this earth started, everything has just gone along exactly the same. Wherever Mount Everest is today, that's where Mount Everest was a billion years ago. Wherever the Gulf of Mexico is today, that's probably where the Gulf of Mexico has been for billions of, of years. Everything just goes along the way it always has. There's never been a flood. There's never been any cataclysmic event that reshapes the earth. There's never been any kind of judgment. There's nothing to worry about. Watch what Peter goes on to say. But they deliberately forget. They deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by that same water, also the world of that time, talking about pre-flood, was deluged and what? Destroyed. You see, what God is telling Noah is, not only am I going to wipe out all the people, I am going to completely destroy the earth. I'm going to remake it. What it was before and what it will be after will be two completely different 
things. And we'll talk about that more uh, probably as we get into next week. One family, though, is going to be saved, and, and so God tells Noah what he is to do. Look at verse 14. He says, Make yourself an ark, and the Hebrew word is tevat. Make yourself a tevat of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Now, the term that he uses here is really interesting. He does not use the term for boat or ship. There is a Hebrew word for ship called onia. He doesn't use that word. He, he says, make yourself a tevat, which is the Hebrew word for box or chest. See, the ark, the ark is not going to need some kind of thin bow to cut through the water. The ark is not going to need uh, oars or sails. It's not going to need a pilot or a rudder or a steering wheel or a captain. It needs to do one thing and one thing only, and that's float. That, that's all it needs to do. It's not going to be propelled through the water like a modern-day ship. It's not going to be propelled through anything. It just, it's just going to float. It's basically a big barge is what it is. And now, and its shape is going to do two things. We'll talk about this as we move through the, through the lesson or in, and even into next week. The rectangular shape is going to give it stability, and it's also going to give it more storage capacity. I, um, I want to make a couple of side notes when I talk about this. The word here, tevat, is only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's in the story of Moses. Exodus 2.3 says this, when she, talking about Moses' mother, could not hide him any longer, she took for him a basket, and that word is tevat. That's the same exact word. They, they, just, they translate it basket because it's made out of reeds, and that's exactly what it was. But the word in the Hebrew, make for him an ark. Make for him this box or this chest. And so she did. She, she made it out of bulrushes. She daubed it with uh, pitch or bitumen or this asphalt material to waterproof it, put Moses in it, and, and sent him along his, his way. That's the only other time it's used. So in both cases, the ark is a, is a refuge. Uh, first, it's for Noah, who's going to be God's instrument to save humanity. And then later on, it'll be used again for, for Moses, who will be God's instrument to save the people of Israel. By the way, if you think, well, what about the Ark of the Covenant? That's actually a different word that's used there. Okay, not Tevat, it's a different word. There are currently four replicas of the Ark around the world. Okay, the first one, and has anybody here been to the Ark Encounter in Kentucky? So I got one back there. Uh, so there's one in, uh, in, in Williamstown, Kentucky that, uh, that they've done. Uh, there's another one called Johann's Ark in Holland. Uh, it's been there for uh, quite a few years. There's also a Noah's Ark Park and Resort uh, in Hong Kong. This big rich guy in, in Hong Kong got, became a Christian and built the, the Noah's Ark uh, Park and Resort. And there's one in New Brunswick, uh, Canada called the School of the Spirit. There's actually another one in, in Maryland, but the guy's been building it for 40 years and he just ain't making no progress. So he, doesn't get, he didn't get listed up here. Uh, this is the one in Holland. Um, and I think, again, we don't know exactly what it looked like, but to me, according to the description, this is probably the closest. It's a, it's a big floating barge, okay? And we'll talk here in a minute about how big it is and all that. One of the interesting things about this one is it actually is seaworthy. It actually floats. The others are all built on land or built near the water. This is actually on the water. 
it can actually move up and down the up and down the river some some form or fashion. So we'll talk about this as we move through. Look at verse 14 again. He says, "Make yourself a tivot or an ark, a box or a chest of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch." Now we have no idea what gopher wood is. Okay, I'm just going to tell you right now. Uh, that's been lost. However, whatever it was in the original Hebrew, more than likely it was a type of cedar. Because cedar is light and it, and it works well for, for building ships. But the fact is, we just do not know uh, what gopher wood uh, actually is. He tells him to make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. Now, pitch is what we would know as like asphalt or tar or something called bitumen. And you might ask, well, where, does, where would Noah get that? Well, it's actually found today... Uh, in pits near the Dead Sea where it actually just bubbles up out of the ground and people can go collect it. In the Middle Ages in Europe, they would make it, they would take pine rosin, they would notch trees, they'd take pine rosin and they would heat that up and then mix it with charcoal and create pitch. So, so there's been ways of doing this for years and years. Today, of course, it's mostly produced from burning or heating uh, coal, which is where we get it today. Where did Noah get it? Again, he could have, they could have had a process where they got it from trees. They, there could have been pools in the area where they, uh, as I said, uh, used it. We don't know, but that's, that's, he got it one way or another. Of course, it's used to make the ark waterproof. If you put boards together, you're going to have, always going to have cracks and slats. Wood's going to shrink. Uh, you, you cover it with pitch and that makes it waterproof. By the way, studies have also been done that when you put pitch on a wooden boat like that, it also makes it stronger and it's able to withstand the pounding of the seas and, and things like that. So that was another added benefit to it. Now let's talk a little bit, which I think is really interesting, about its size. Verse 15, this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is to be 300 cubits, its breadth is to be 50 cubits, and its height is to be 30 cubits. So 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and uh, 30 cubits high. Now the first question we all have is, What's a cubit, right? What, what does that even mean? Okay, so, so, so a cubit uh, is an ancient measurement of, of length, and it was basically from your elbow to the tip of your longest finger. Okay, that was a cubit. Um, and, but the actual, it comes, of course, you can think, well, any, you know, one man, it'll be longer than the next man, right? So each culture kind of had their own cubit, and, you, and I kind of put a, a little wooden thing, they would actually make a little wooden thing and that would be used to measure, kind of like a, a yardstick. We call it a cubic stick, right? Um, but the funny thing is, the length of the cubit varied between cultures. There was a Babylonian cubit, there was an Egyptian cubit, and there was a Hebrew cubit. Okay, so they all had... The, and not only that, when you got into the individual cultures, each one had their own variation. So there was a Hebrew short cubit, and there was a Hebrew long cubit. So the short cubit was about 17 and a half inches. The long cubit was 20.4 inches. Okay, so there was actually two different standards in, in the Hebrew culture. By the way, this is mentioned in the Bible. In Second Chronicles 3.3, when they're building Solomon's temple, it says this, these are Solomon's measurements for building the house of God, the length in cubits of the old standard. So they changed standards somewhere from probably from the long to the short. And that's, that's documented right there in the Bible. So th the fact is, I'm not sure which one Noah used. 
Sometimes you'll read about Noah's Ark and it'll say it was 450 foot long. You go to the one in, in Kentucky, it's 510 foot long. And we'll say, well, what's the difference? Well, because sometimes they'll make assumptions that he used a short cubit, and other times he, they make the assumption that he used the, the long cubit. We just don't know. Um, if he used a short cubit, it was 450 feet long by 75 feet wide by 45 feet high. If they used the long cubit, it was 510 feet long by 85 foot wide by 51 foot high. Now, regardless, this is a massive undertaking. You are talking about a ship, if you went up to Walker High, it's one and a half football fields long. Okay? It's one and a half football fields long. Now, this raises a question. Who in the world built this thing? See, the easy, quest, the easy answer to that is, of course, Noah, and, and maybe his sons helped him, right? But skeptics will say, look, let's, let's be honest here. There is no way that you can take four men and build an ark, a football, a, field, and a, a boat or a ship or a barge, a football field and a half long. There's just no way they could do that by themselves. But the Bible never says they did it by themselves. It never says that. See, they could have easily had additional family members to help them. Remember back when we talked about the genealogy, we know, for example, Methuselah died the year of the flood. So he would have been alive all through that time. Now, you know, a 900-year-old man, probably he's just going to sit in a lawn chair and tell him what to do. I don't know how he could have helped him very much, but the fact is he was there. Lamech, Noah's father, died five years before the flood, so he would have been there. And they would have had uncles and cousins and, and things like that that probably would have been around to be able to help. They could have hired people. Listen, we're building a, a building out back. Um, Scooter, is everybody working on that building a Christian? Not close. No, excuse me, I don't want to say anything. I mean, we, we're building a building. We, we hire people to do it. Noah could have done the exact same thing. He could have hired uh, skilled workers to do that. He could have used animals for, for hauling uh, all the different boards and logs and things like that. By the way, we got to remember, these aren't cavemen. These are smart people. They would have had probably mechanisms and technology. See, everything that we, they had before was lost. I mean, after the flood, they kind of had to start over. But they had had 1,600 years of very smart people to build all these things. They had already invented music and animal husbandry and, and all of that. They could have easily had uh, built, you know, different kind of hoist and things like that. Who knows what they had? Okay, but whatever they had, it was enough to, to build this ark. They were able to do it just as God commanded, a wooden vessel 510 foot long, 85 foot wide, and 51 foot high. Now, when we think of a vessel that big, as I said, if you just went out and laid it out there at Walker High, it would go from one end zone to the other and beyond. Now, compared to modern ships, for those of you here that may have been in the Navy or you've gone on cruise ships or things like that, that doesn't seem like that really big of a deal, right? We, we see ships today much bigger than that. I want to put this in a little bit of perspective for you. So Noah's Ark is 510 foot long. So the Titanic, for example, was 883 feet long. The Carnival Destiny cruise liner is 893 feet. The Queen Elizabeth is 963. The Queen Mary is 1,020, and the USS Nimitz is 1,092 feet. So we've built a lot of ships bigger than, than Noah's Ark. But let me, let me give you a little bit of perspective. 
The ark was the largest floating vessel ever built until 160 years ago. Now let me just say that again. The ark was the largest floating vessel ever built in the history of this planet until 160 years ago in 1858. I mean, that's, to me, that's just astounding. In fact, see, it's only in the last 160 years that we've had not only the technology to build vessels bigger than that, but we've actually got the materials because you can't go bigger than 500 feet unless you move to steel and iron. It's just not feasible. They've tried it, and with using wood, it just doesn't work. So they had to act, in order to have bigger ships and bigger boats, they had to actually do it with steel and with iron. And it's only in the last 160 years that we've had the technology to be able to, to, to mold that steel and iron and do it in the way that we need to do to build ships. In 1858, the first ship ever built larger than the ark was called the Great Eastern. It was 692 feet long. And in fact, it was such a huge jump in ship shipbuilding. Before that, the, the, the biggest one was only like 300 feet. So it was such a big jump that for 40 years, nobody built anything bigger. It, it remained the largest ship in the world to up till 1898. So by the time you get to 1898, there's still, there's still, and that's what, 120 years ago? So even up to 120 years ago, there was still only one vessel ever built bigger than the ark. I mean, we're going to talk about this a little bit next week. I mean, Noah, I mean, what, what they pulled off and what they did was absolutely amazing. Now, I want to stop here and do a quick did you know, okay? Because I want to talk, I want you to hold on to that size and what Noah did there for a second. Let me chase a quick rabbit. Did you know that there are flood stories in over 200 cultures around the world. If you go to the American Indians, the Hopi Indians had a flood story of, a, of about this flood that happened over the world and, and this hero saved all mankind. You find stories like this in Europe, in China, in India, in the Polynesian Islands, in in, in Haiti, in South America, it doesn't care, it doesn't matter where you go, all over the world, there are flood stories, okay, like, like we have here in the Bible. Now, we may ask the question, well, how do we, how do we explain that? How, how do you explain the fact that all these different cultures around the world have flood stories? Well, now, to us that believe in the Bible, this should make perfect sense, right? If Noah and, and, and his family, come out of the flood, and they're the only people on the earth, and they begin to repopulate, and it begins to grow, this story gets told over and over and over and over and over again. And eventually, at the Tower of Babel, they all split, right? God confuses their languages, and they go different ways. Well, they would have taken that story with them to, to the furthest parts of the earth. Everybody would have taken that story. It makes perfect sense. Now, over time, the details would get confused, uh, but the fact is, that I mean, that makes sense to everybody. I mean, that makes perfect sense to, to me. And of course, they would pass down this story for not just hundreds of years, but for thousands of years. And as I said, over time, the details would get messed up. You know, the names would be changed to protect the innocent, those kind of things. And, and again, it just the story, but, but the kind of the gist of the story stays together. In fact, if scientists have, have or, 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 or people that study this have gathered all these stories together, and it's amazing 
that there's a, the details, like I said, are really different. Um, I think there's one story in China where the flood, it was, a started between, it was an argument between a crab and a stork, right? And that's what, I mean, you, you get that kind of junk, right? But in every single one of them, there's a global flood, there's a boat, and there's a hero. In every single one of them, there's a global flood, there's a boat, and there's a hero. I'll give you a few examples. In Hawaii, there's a story about a man named Nu'u. And he made this great canoe and he built a house on it. And he filled it with the animals and he saved mankind. If you go to China, you'll find a story about a man named Fu He. And he's got, amazingly, his wife, his three sons and their wives all get on this boat and they survive and repopulate the, the earth. One of the oldest flood stories and the most detailed flood stories is found in the Babylonian culture thousands of years ago. It's called the Epic of Gilgamesh. Okay, and you can, you can go Google this and read it. Now, I'll give you an example of the details. In this story, the hero only had seven days to build the ark. Okay, now, listen, Noah, we're not sure, Noah probably took 75 to 100 years to build the ark. This guy had seven days, so that's, that's a little iffy right there. By the way, when it starts raining in this story, it only rains for seven days. So they were somehow or another in love with the number seven. They just started plugging it in everywhere. But that doesn't make much sense either. But here's the thing that really gets us. In the story, the ark that is built is 120 by 120 by 120. 120 cubits long, 120 cubits high, and 120 cubits why? Now, everybody knows that's a cube, right? Think about a little child's block. And, if, and, and every shipbuilder will tell you if you build a ship with those dimensions, first of all, if, if, if you put it out there in the water and it's just going to start spinning. Any kind of wind hits it, it's just going to spin and spin and spin and spin and spin and spin. And if it gets turbulent at all, it's super unstable. I mean, it would probably flip within the first 30 minutes. It's just very unstable and could easily capsize. So any shipbuilder would look at that and say, that's absolutely ridiculous. There's no way. Everybody with me? Okay. You see, down throughout the ages, as men began to build ships, they, they learned what would work and they figured out what wouldn't work. Certain shapes worked and certain shapes didn't work. And, and, and the bigger the ships got, they learned even more and more. And one of the things they learned, that if you're going to build a seaworthy ship or a seaworthy vessel, you have to have a certain length-to-width ratio. And they figured out that the best ratio is somewhere between 6 to 1 to 8 to 1. Everybody with me? In other words, the length should be 6 times the width at the most. In other words, if you get too short... Right? It gets unstable. If you get too long, like a canoe. Everybody ever been in a canoe? Canoes are unstable because they're too long for their width. Right? That's, I mean, we just, some of these things make perfect sense, right? Well, here's the amazing thing the ark is exactly six to one. It's exactly six to one. It's 300 long by 50 foot wide. It's exactly the perfect dimensions for maximum stability in the water. Listen, Noah's not a shipbuilder. Nobody's ever built anything like this. He, there's no book for him to read. He can't open it up and say, man, I wonder what the, this needs to be here, right? Yet it's designed for maximum stability. And skeptics will say, well, how, how could he have known that? 
Well, he knew it because God said, Moa, I want you to build it this long, right? I mean, that's just amazing to me. In fact, it has been estimated that the ark literally would have to be completely turned up on its side ever to flip. That's how it was almost impossible to flip. It would have to go completely up on its uh, side, vertical, to ever turn over. It was amazingly stability. You know how ships today have rounded bottoms, right? And the reason they have rounded bottoms is because it helps them move through the water. Well, this rectangular bottom that it had makes it incredibly stable. Ships have to have a rounded bottom, again, because of, uh, of efficiency, but it, but it kind of hurts them in a sense because it makes them a little more unstable. The ark didn't have that problem at all. It was an incredibly stable uh, vessel. In fact, probably more stable than, than any other vessel that's ever been built. By the way, it, it would tend to ride... It wasn't built to cut through the waves. It was, just, it was built just to ride with the waves, right on top of them. And it did that absolutely uh, fine. So the size of the shape and shape of the ark fit exactly with what we know today scientifically about what would make a vessel that would actually be able to float. Now, I don't know about you, but see, if this story had some kind of weird uh, size in there, and a scientist could look and say, man, that ain't never going to work. But see, we can look at it and say it works perfect. And that, I mean, that should just once again just be evidence for the truthfulness and the veracity of Scripture for us. That They can't point to that and say... In fact, I, I, one of the things when I study, I like to go out and read websites of unbelievers and see what they say. And one guy said, well, there's no way he would have known to build that boat like that, right? I mean, where would they come up with that? Well, again, we know it's because God kind of knows that stuff, doesn't he? I mean, he kind of, you know, he's a smart guy. He knows all that stuff, so he tells him. And skeptics say, well, no, they'd never, never be able to figure that out. But again, it's, to me, it's just a, a wonderful evidence of the veracity of Scripture. And by the way, it's not built in seven days or seven years. We don't know exactly because Scripture never tells us exactly how long. You can do a lot of math and try to figure things out when his sons were born. But it's somewhere around 75 years, probably, that it took him, that they labored for 75 years building a boat in the middle of dry land, which... <laughs> You know, we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. Its internal space amounts to just over 100,000 square feet. By the way, this dome, I think uh, Chuck told me, is about 12,000 square feet. So think about a little more, about, about nine or ten of these domes is, a, is the square footage that you have. Total volume is 1.5 million cubic feet. It's equivalent to about 522 boxcars. So you think about a train and a boxcar on a train. You could fit 522 of them stacked up inside the uh, ark. Listen, there, we're going to go through this in a couple of weeks. There are books written on this stuff, and they've done the calculations on how many animals. And In fact, we'll spend all next week talking about animals. So just get ready. Everybody, there's all these questions. Were there dinosaurs? How did he get them all? How did he feed them? What did he do with the waste? What, how, all the stuff, we'll, we're going to cover all that uh, next week because all that's been, uh, guys a lot smarter than me, um, have, have done it. Let's talk about a few other details and we'll close. Verse 16, make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubic above, a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side and make it with lower, second, and third decks. Okay? So you've got a roof on the top. The roof is built probably with some angle so the water can shed off of the roof. Uh, where the roof comes to the edge of the ark, you've got a, uh, an 18-inch, basically an 18-inch gap all the way around the ark. Okay? That, of course, you're going to need some kind of ventilation 
to let all the, the, the smell and the, all that get out. You need air getting in. Uh, we also need light, and so this is going to provide for, for all of that. There's only one door, which makes perfect sense, right? It's only going to be used twice. You're going to come in, and you're going to go off. You're going to come in, a year later, you're going to walk out. There's not going to be a lot of stops. We're not, we're not you know, this ain't a cruise. We're not going to stop at islands, let them jump off and get back on. We're not doing any of that. You're going to get on one time, you're going to get off one time. And so there's just one door because you'd want to minimize uh, any chance of leakage. He's, he's told to build, uh, build three decks. He's got a lower, a second, and a third deck. This, of course, maximizes the use of the space, right? If he, only, if he didn't have decks and he put everything on the floor, you got all this room up like, like here in the dome where you're not using. But by building decks, they maximize the, uh, the, the use of the space in, inside. I want to talk a little bit as we get ready to close here about a global flood. Verse 17, behold, God says, I will bring, he finally tells Noah, you're going to build this big thing, right? This ark. And here's why. Because I'm going to bring a global, I'm going to bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Now, I mentioned earlier that all across the world there are flood stories. But to evolutionists, a global flood is unacceptable. They just will not go down that road. Well, you may say, why? Well, because, first of all, a global flood has to be supernatural. You can't explain it by glaciers melting. You can't explain it by changes in sea level. You can't explain it by a meteor uh, falling in the ocean. You can't. You, a global flood means two things. Number one, it's supernatural, and it means judgment. And they just will not go down that road. So it, pretty much every... How, you may say, well, how do they explain all these flood stories in all of these cultures? Well, I'll give you a few of them. Um, one of them says the deluge myth in North America may be based on the sudden rise in sea levels. The geography of the Mesopotamian area was considerably changed by the filling of the Persian Gulf after seawaters rose following the last glacial period. Another one says global flood stories were inspired by ancient observations of seashells and fish fossils in inland and mountain areas. Another one says a meteor or a comet crashed into the Indian Ocean and generated a giant tsunami that flooded coastal land. So what they say is no matter where you go, there was a regional flood. In other words, this culture saw a flood and they may have had a story about it. Well, that culture... So basically all over the world there was these little regional floods down through history that, that, which kind of contributed to these people having these stories. But what I want you to see is the Bible is extremely, extremely clear that this wasn't a regional flood, it was a global flood. I don't know how you can make it any clearer other than verse 17. I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. I'm not just going to kill the animals in this little area. I'm going to do it... I mean, if you're under heaven and you're breathing, it's over, right? Everything that is on the earth shall die. I don't know how you can make it any clearer than that. It is a global uh, flood. Finally, uh, in verse 18, God says this, "...but I will establish my covenant with you," talking to Noah, "...and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you." In the Bible, God makes covenants with four men. He makes a covenant with Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. 
Those are the four men that he makes covenants with. Now, they're all important, and there's all some really good lessons in each one of these. Now, here in Genesis chapter 6 is the very first time the word covenant is ever used in the Bible. God says, I'm going to make an agreement. I'm going to make a promise. I'm going to make a covenant uh, with you. I'm going to establish this with you and through you. Okay? Now, we won't cover that today because it's really it's, it's going to be talked about in detail in chapter 9, and so we'll, we'll, we'll discuss the covenant when we get to chapter 9. But I will tell you up front, this is not a bilateral cover, covenant. This is not one of those things, you do this and I'll do this. This is what we would call a unilateral covenant. That means uni means one. God says, I'm going to do this thing, right? Noah doesn't say anything. Noah doesn't promise anything. Noah doesn't sign anything. This is all about God. God says, I'm going to establish a covenant with you. I'm going to do this thing. Before this covenant can be established, of course, Noah and his family uh, will need to be saved from the flood and kept alive. And along them, with them, will be all the animals of, of the earth. Now, next week, we are going to, like I said, we're going to spend a lot of time on the animals. And there's a reason for that, because it is the one thing that skeptics will point at and say, they'll say there's no way. There's no way you could fit all the animals on the earth into that ark. There's no way you could have fed all those animals for a year. There's no way you could have, you could have gotten rid of the waste. There's no, they just say it over and over and over Again, And the sad thing, the very sad thing when you read some of these, is some of these people are Christians or claim to be Christians that are saying, this can't be real. But I'm going to show you next week, not only could he have gotten all the animals, he did get all the animals. I'll show you how he fed them. We'll talk about how he watered them, how he took care of them. We'll talk about all that stuff next week. It's just some amazing... When you first think about it, Real quickly, I want to understand something. It's easy to be a skeptic. To be a skeptic, you only have to ask questions. You never have to answer anything. I went out to a skeptic's website the other day on Noah's Ark, and the whole article was questions. Well, how could they have done this? Well, how about this? He never had to answer anything. See, if we're believers, then we, in some sense, have to answer, right? We have to say, well, this is, this is how this could have happened, or this is how that could have happened. But a skeptics don't have to do this at all. Um, thank God, thank God for a couple of men who would not go uh, the way of the world. One of those was a man by the name of Henry Morris and another guy I can't remember, but two men, or I can't remember his name, two men who had just researched this and, and, and dug into the details and showed this is how it could have been, had been done. And we'll spend a lot of time on that uh, next week when we go to the second part of, of Noah's Ark. Let's pray. Father... We thank you.